0: Telecast, the TV industry news review.
1: Hi, I'm Justin Crosby and welcome to this week's Telecast. On this week's show, my guests are Luke Hyams, Head of Originals for YouTube in EMEA, and Jonathan Scogmo, Founder and CEO at Jukin Media. And as the UK heads into another lockdown, K7 Media's Gert Sleesis looks at the future for live events in the TV industry. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. This year, COVID-19 has changed the game for many TV production businesses. Production interrupted, physical markets gone. So now it's more critical than ever to build your business and sell your shows to broadcasters and streaming platforms around the world. But how do you stand out from the crowd when everything is virtual? And how can you hire the best PR consultants to announce your news when you can't afford the retainer? Well, we've created the solution, PRBuzz.tv. PRBuzz.tv is the fast, hassle-free and effective new service from Boom PR to get the content industry talking about you. No PR retainer, no inexperienced PRs assigned to your account who don't get your business. Just a flexible premium press release service to suit your budget, delivered by experienced professionals former TV journalists who understand the content industry, the media, and what makes a new story. To find out more, go to our website at prbuzz.tv and book a free Zoom consultation, and let's help you build your business and sell more content. So on this week's show, I'm delighted to welcome Luke Hyams and Jonathan Scogmo. Luke is Head of Originals for YouTube in EMEA where he oversees all original programming across the region. At YouTube, he's been responsible for a wide range of scripted and unscripted programming, from Terms and Conditions and How to Be Bazinga to Together We Rise. Before joining the Google-owned video platform, Luke was Director of Global Content at the Walt Disney Company, where he worked with the world's best digital creators and legacy Disney brands to create original digital franchises for a variety of platforms. Lucas spent time in Asia partnering with brands to produce web series and micro movies, and before that, worked as a writer and director, creating award winning interactive series including Dub Plate Drama and Kate Modern, for which he earned the Broadcast Press Guild Award for Innovation. And Jonathan is founder and CEO of Jukin Media, the world's first media company that's powered entirely by user-generated video content. He oversees Jukin's licensing business, original productions, marketing, creative, development, and culture. Under his leadership, the company has grown to more than 220 employees with offices in Los Angeles, New York, London, and New Delhi. With more than a decade of industry experience, Jonathan has produced more than 200 hours of linear TV programming for networks such as Fox, MTV, Discovery, True TV and Channel 5. So welcome to the show, Luke and Jonathan. How are you doing?
2: Doing well, thank you. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me.
1: Jonathan, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about Jukin for those who aren't familiar with the digital side of life.
0: Yeah, so Jukin Media is a next generation media company. And everything we do is powered by user-generated content. Um, And user-generated content are often videos shot on drones, cell phones, mobile devices, uh, everyday occurrences. Sometimes it's comedic, sometimes it's inspirational, sometimes it's a caught on camera moment um, where we find a lot of value in these really great videos that everyday people are creating. And we've really built a company um, that powers uh these type of videos when did you set the business up i started the business around 2010 it's hard for me to put an exact date on it but uh it was as as scrappy as a startup as you can get one can get
1: to a certain extent it must have been wild west back then because user generated content and the concept of making money out of this sort of com- content i mean you must have written the rules on a, a lot of this stuff
0: <laughs> well i've certainly seen the evolution of user user generated content i don't think that many people can say they, they spent their whole career around this type of uh of videos uh, uh i think some people have labeled me the king but you know uh to give a quick story you know i've really seen it uh evolved when it came from a very analog system of of america's Funniest home videos or your version you've been framed of people sending yeah. you know their vhs tapes in um and my job my one of my first jobs in hollywood was to go pick up those vhs tapes from a p.o box that people would send in for a chance to be on the show uh and, right yeah and so i had to clear and source all that video content uh and so i really seen it rise from this analog to this digital mobile world that we're living in today from the times when people had to have a uh, you know
1: one of those huge VHS cameras or whatever, everybody's now got a phone. Everybody's in the moment, and everybody's a journalist to a certain extent.
0: Uh, absolutely, I think that's what makes this con- this content so great. It's very authentic. It's uh, organic. You can't remanufacture some of these moments, um, which is you know what we love at Jukan.
1: I talked in the intro about a few different aspects of your business. Um, Presumably, the licensing side is the is the biggest component of your business, or can can you give us a bit of a a, a, a bit of clarity about all the different divisions of your your business? Because you've got tw- two hundred and twenty employees, right, across three or four offices.
0: That's right. We have two hundred and twenty uh, employees uh, headquartered in Los Angeles, Los Angeles. Office in New York. Office in London. Office in New Delhi. Uh, and then a bunch of other people scattered around the world. Um, We've built some really great technology to help us find these really great videos that I've been talking about. we applied that with some methodology um, and essentially is we're finding these videos before anyone has seen them before. So we can acquire the rights from these individual video owners and they get to participate uh, in, in cash and we paid over $25 billion to everyday video owners. And we really, I believe created the market uh, for this type of content where you talk about the wild west it certainly was the wild west when i first started uh nobody took these these rights seriously nobody took user generated content seriously uh and i'm proud to say that that you know this content is powering this really great media company that we have today um, you talk about yeah. the licensing business that's certainly our our legacy business and what the company was first based on because i used to produce a lot of these kind of uh, talk shows and clip shows that use uh user-generated content so a lot of the you've been framed or america Funny some videos uh those derivative versions i i i helped produce and i really saw the value of this content particularly around the time when online video and youtube started launching um, obviously, the proliferation of mobile devices, the way we create content, the way we share content. Uh, content. So I really kind of see that, saw that evolve over time. And you talk about the licensing business, the licensing business, once we get these really great assets, they go up on this platform. Think of it as like a Getty Images or a vir- for viral videos or user-generated content, where we have our own platform, our own marketplace where we license our content to every morning show, news show, talk show, clip show around the world. We work with some of the biggest uh, uh, publishers, uh, digital publishers and, and news publishers of this content. And we also work a lot with brands and uh, advertising agencies to use this content for their television campaigns or for their digital campaigns.
1: So in terms of splitting that down, the broadcast industry, what sort of percentage would be licensing into broadcast versus brands, and the other bucket as well?
0: If I had to guess just off the top of my head, it's probably, I would say 50 on the entertainment side. So that would be the talk shows, clip shows uh, around the world. I would say um, 35% on the um, advertising brand side, and that steadily rises every year. And then about 15%. I would say, on the publishing side.
1: Actually, that's probably indicative of uh, the budget availability within those industries and how they're changing, right?
0: A- absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see on the advertising side, six, seven years ago, there wasn't a brand that would talk, uh, touch user-generated content.
1: Now, it's all about you know, getting real, isn't it? It's about authenticity and about connecting with individuals uh, rather than you know a huge glossy super bowl ad i mean you probably see user-generated content in super bowl ads now right
0: we, we've licensed our content for super bowl ads we just licensed our content for some ads in the world series we've done stuff for the oscars um yeah it's amazing there's probably more user-generated campaigns than ever before and you're absolutely right people want that authenticity people want you know, real people using their products and services. And so brands want to jump in that conversation. So they'll hire us to find these videos of people using their products and services. Um, and it's it's a great win for everybody. Going back to something
1: you said earlier on about you have teams identifying that user-generated content that, that's going to work for licensing. I mean, how do you find it from the billions of videos that are out there and, uh, and hundreds of millions that are uploaded every day. How do you find them? There's, is is it have, have you got a proprietary technology that you've developed, or is it just literally a, a case of you know it's it's about having human bloodhounds, if you like, to go out there that, that that find the right clips?
0: Like yeah, like I said, it's a great question. Like I said, I think it's really when that methodology meets technology. So we have a know how team um, that's been doing this for a long time. Uh, So a lot of institutional knowledge and uh, what content works, how we license, how do we source that content, because you can find a video anywhere on the Internet. But it's really about finding the right video um, that is owned by the right person uh, and sourcing that content. And so we have to be super diligent, making sure that we're having the right uh, video owner at the end of the day. Otherwise, anybody can just find the content because there's so many different video platforms out there right now. Um, so that's kind of really the methodology, uh, the institutional knowledge, and be first movers. And I think, you know, uh, creating the market. That's our advantage on the methodology side. I think on the technology side is that we've spent millions of dollars over the years iterating um, our proprietary technology. Uh, think of it as a giant filter we put on the internet, of uh, internet videos, and it's really kicking out videos that don't meet a certain criteria a video is, you know, less than a certain time length. Over a certain time length, if it's a big subscriber account, we don't want, you know, big accounts. Again, we're looking for everyday people. You know, we don't want copyrighted music in our videos. So we're essentially, it's kicking out all these videos. Um, and once it gets down to a certain number of videos, we actually then do put eyes on it—human eyes on that video which to help us work through this proprietary kind of CRM system um, that's tracking the video. Uh, tracking the, the viewership of that video, and then uh, how we do these reach out to video owners, which is then done through a manual process.
1: Tell us some of your most successful
0: genres. Yeah, so I mean, it's I, I touched on a little bit. It is animals, it's pets, it's inspiration, it's comedy, it, it, it is that caught on camera moment. I think what's so great about this content, not just it's organic, which we talked about, but also it's very language agnostic. Uh, it's universal. I like to yeah. say a cute kid is a cute kid anywhere, a cute pet is a cute pet anywhere. A guy getting kicked in the you know what uh, yeah. is funny anywhere. So i like yeah. to say an ouch is an ouch in any language.
1: And an amazing basket that somebody's, you know, throwing a basketball like the length of a stadium or something is always, you know, at a a college game is still going to... People are still going to enjoy watching that even if it's, you know, whatever, five seconds long.
0: Absolutely. You know, it it, it goes across... Every culture, culture, religion, country—it's really amazing to see um, how much how much appeal there is to this type of content.
1: Yeah, I noticed that one of the ones from last year, I think it was, or maybe it was a year before, Chewbacca mom. Now, Chewbacca mom was just a mom with a Chewbacca mask that actually made a, a a laughing noise, and it was just such a infectious video that went crazy viral off the top of your head, do you know how that's done in terms of YouTube right now?
0: I don't know how many views off the top of my head on, on YouTube, I do know at one point on Facebook, it was the, the most watched live stream video uh, ever, or at least at the time um, when that video was being recorded, the Chewbacca mom. And it's just kind of crazy exactly that, again, another example how this crossed barriers and it's very universal. Uh, just a woman putting on a Chewbacca mask, it becomes this kind of pop culture moment, this this universal icon, this zeitgeist moment that everybody's talking about. I mean, that's what's crazy about these viral moments. It's crazy the mass appeal that that, that it has. We have a trophy case now at the office in LA and it's uh, that, that Chewbacca mask is sitting in that trophy case because I believe that one day that mask will be uh, in a museum somewhere.
1: What sort of revenue can a video like that uh, generate
0: yeah i think this doesn't happen for every video and and sometimes for our video owners we will pay an upfront fee um, which could be a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars if they share in that kind of participation a video like that has earned i'm not sure about that one but it has earned into the six figures and this is for a 30 second you know usually a 30 second accidental piece of content um, that we're able to monetize over and over again. We talked about licensing. That's just kind of the one of the touch points uh, where we can monetize that content.
1: So TikTok. I mean, you're having to keep across all of these different video platforms. Um, you talked about Facebook. We're talking to Luke at YouTube, and uh, you know, YouTube is is really the the platform that must have pretty much kickstarted your business. How about TikTok? Because that's a new entrant into the marketplace and now it looks like it's 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 a legal business in the U.S. How has it changed your business in the in the last few
0: months? I think it hasn't really changed our business. I'll, I'll put it slightly differently. I think it has accelerated our business, uh, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, more people were, were viewing TikTok than ever before. More people were on their mobile phones than ever before. You saw uh, uh, viewership go, go through the roof. You saw streaming go through the roof. at the same time, you saw content creation go through the roof, which was pretty amazing. Um, You saw how creative people can be in the the confine of their living room or backyard uh, between dances and uh, reenactments and and just funny, really great, funny and creative content. That platform exploded and was perfectly well made for, for, in some ways, for this uh, environment that we're living in.
1: You said that, you know, consumption and, and, and creation is, uh, have both gone through the roof. So presumably you've been able to ride the wave of both.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's definitely been more, I think, more creative content creation than, than ever before, which is pretty amazing. And there's been demand for that content, uh, particularly on the licensing side for brands. Um, we worked with a handful of, of Fortune 500 brands during this pandemic, which has been great as they want – A lot of campaigns are doing this. We are in this together and showing whether it's nurses crying nurses dancing or people cheering on nurses. We had a lot of that content that was being used in a lot of these campaigns, which I think were very, you know, uplifting and inspirational. And we're proud that we've been able to supply content for that, particularly in an environment where production has been limited, right? You can't go out and do these physical shoots. So I think you know brands really needed content. They wanted content that was relevant. They wanted content that was authentic, and so we were a great solution for brands during this time. I think we licensed over you know 500 videos or something uh, to brands and agencies uh, in I think the month of March through June, which is kind of crazy. So a lot. Of, so so there on the licensing side, um, business certainly grew. We talked about the viewership grew content creation, I think, grew for this type of content. Uh, Some of the challenges have been certainly on the advertising as far as CPMs and monetizing that content um, as brands have pulled back their media spend.
1: So we've seen the impact that TikTok has had, uh, not just in the US, but around the world. How do you see the future for short form content?
0: Yeah. um, Like I've alluded before, I think TikTok has accelerated, accelerated the adoption of it, accelerated the creation of it. I think more people are used to it. More brands want to put their brands in front of this content. So I think it's actually accelerated at five years. Uh, I think the, the fact that user generated content is more mainstream. It's more real. People want to see it. People want to see real people. And like I mentioned, uh, before you know, six or so years ago, there wasn't a brand that wanted to be anywhere near UGC or associated with UGC. And I think with the explosion of TikTok, particularly uh, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you guys saw this video, this, this Ocean Spray video of the guy of the skateboarder. I mean, look at that with Fleetwood Mac. I mean, it drove sales of Ocean Spray. It made Fleet that old Fleetwood Mac song, that great song dreams become the number one song on itunes which i mean if that's not a proof point i don't know what is right
1: yeah absolutely no it's uh, again that was that uh, that was another uh, one of those 15 seconds of fame i can't remember the youtuber or the uh, the tiktoker should i say that recorded that but i get the impression that he's done okay out of that video
0: yeah i think he has and i think he's had crowdsourcing i think now he has an agent uh, I think he, the only reason he was on a skateboard because his car broke down. I think he was able to afford a new car. Uh, it's kind of amazing what the human spirit can do, uh, to lift something up. And that was, you know, a 15 second video.
1: I saw him on a news program actually with Mick Fleetwood and they were both on the, on the line together. And Mick Fleetwood was just saying, thank you. Thank you so much. And he was just, you know, he couldn't believe his luck. Right. I mean, it was, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary. Brilliant story.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Luke, so YouTube, we, we've seen a, a change in tack for YouTube's original strategy in recent months, away from the SVOD model of YouTube premium, and more towards a traditional free content with ad breaks type model, and also allowing creators to sell subscriptions to their own fans, like bands and, and what have you. Can you talk us through that, how that change happened and how that's developing right now?
2: So, YouTube Premium is still very much a thing that everybody can can subscribe to if they like the kind of extra features of, you know, being able to have YouTube without adverts or listen to YouTube audio with your phone screen off. But you know, for us as originals, it was a major triumph for us to kind of uncouple uh, from putting our shows behind the premium paywall exclusively to allow us to reach uh, you know that enormous 1.9 billion a month individual user uh, base that we have on youtube so we we're really excited about it because it broadens the reach of of mm. our shows um at the same time though we're not leaving all our premium subscribers in the dust a lot of times when we have a special or something we have additional content that is behind the premium paywall or if we do an episodic series um sometimes we like to do a thing where you can see the show week to week for free but if you'd like to binge the whole thing on day one of release you can subscribe to youtube premium and just see it all
1: you can still access any content without ads through youtube premium but essentially any originals that we're going to see do have ad breaks now
2: yeah they do unless you're a premium subscriber and you don't get the ad break so you know round and round we go but yeah we we felt like it was the best thing to do to reach as many people as possible with our shows yeah
1: yeah you must be one of the most in demand execs when it comes to commissioning it's like you know we've got a great idea we've we want to get youtube Involved in our project. Can you talk us through your originals commissioning strategy at the moment in terms of the areas of content that you're looking to acquire and create programming in?
2: Well, look, I feel like we're in a tremendous position. Like you say, YouTube is like a hotbed of creativity where people of all ages with all interests go to express themselves. So what we like to do is we like to look for opportunities where we can partner with people who are smashing it on YouTube to be able to help them amplify what they do take it to the next level creatively um, by partnering with them for, for an original and giving them budget and marketing and that extra bit of support so for us it's looking at the data uh, looking at the comments understanding what is working on youtube and what from the uk we feel like we should stick a rocket under and really celebrate
1: So in terms of content areas um, uh, that you're looking to create original YouTube programming in,
2: can you take us through those? I'm currently commissioning into four verticals. Uh, Personalities, which is uh, content um, around YouTube creators or celebrities or public figures who've, for the most part, already built a presence on YouTube uh then there's uh music music is such a huge part of the youtube story and such a an audience driver so anytime we can collaborate with uh, musicians to do uh shows um on, for youtube originals that's something we're always into um learning is kind of you know learning an impact is, it's more like a sort of specialist factual strain we'd call over here um and it's really just doing taking the fact that people go on youtube for a learning experience and um trying to build on that to create a sort of premium entertainment experience based around some sort of uh, uh learning takeaway that they can get out of an entertaining show and then finally is kids you know we we have the youtube kids act uh, app and we have a commitment to producing original content for kids that will live both on the main YouTube site and will make the app a richer kind of destination uh, for for parents to, to allow their kids to, to engage with because they'll know that there's more kind of curated programming there um, that, you know, is a little bit more traditional in some senses, but also feels true to YouTube and what kids like to watch on YouTube.
1: You mentioned music and clearly you know, a lot of acts are unable to tour now. They're actually unable to get out. Theatres are unable to host shows, except there's a whole swathe of the entertainment community that's not able to perform its art. So have you seen, you know, changes in the way that musicians, for example, and artists have been using YouTube over the last few months uh, since the pandemic hit?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we've we've really seen artists embrace live streaming, YouTube in general, but live streaming particularly in a whole big way, uh, just to be able to connect with their audiences and really, you know, give uh, their audience something to get excited about during these, you know, challenging times. At the same time as well, there's some like platform functionalities like the membership thing where people are able to basically sign up. Uh, to be, you know, for an artist or a creator and and have access to exclusive content ahead of time um, and priority in streams and stuff. So that's that's one way that we've seen them utilizing it. There's a, yeah, a few different platform functionalities, but for the most part, you know, we found it as a, you know, great way for artists to just be able to communicate with their audiences and stay relevant. How about
1: education as well and and learning? I mean, in in the first lockdown obviously schools were closed this is we're talking about in the uk but I, I know many territories around the world where we have telecast listeners the same was uh, true have you seen any changes there i mean you've seen a massive uptick in terms of that sort of content on the uh, on the platform
2: the whole way that people have been embracing learning content on youtube throughout this time is one of the main things i think people will look back at as a big shift i mean that the hunger The 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 sort of the reaction of oh, I, I need to know something and then going to YouTube to find the answer was already something that was very, very well entrenched in audience minds. But now the kind of extended learning that you see with a lot of young people And parents using longer form content to really engage with, like they would a lesson or a teacher, um, you know, that has been something that's been, you know, quite, quite prevalent throughout this time and something that we're really happy about at YouTube.
1: The overall growth of the time that we're consuming YouTube has gone up as well, presumably.
2: Yes, I believe that that's what the statistics say. Because YouTube has such a breadth of content, it just really feels like um, it's been a place that a lot of people turn to for a kind of unique viewing experience, more so now than ever. Um, and I think, you know, it for us, as far as the originals go, you know, we, we have had some some really positive results with some of the shows that we've launched both here and around the world this year as a result of the fact that people are basically in home, at home, you know, engaging with the platform a lot more.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you take us through a couple of those then in terms of recent commissions that you've been involved in for YouTube Originals?
2: Absolutely. So at the end of September, we launched a show that we've been working on for over a year called Together We Rise. And that was... a a story about two young entrepreneurs who built a music empire through starting a really successful YouTube channel, which started off as Grime Daily and evolved into GRM Daily over the last 10 years. And it really felt like one of those things like I wasn't a massive basketball fan, but I was able to definitely connect with the story of Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippin because it was a great human story. And, you know, even if you're not a fan of this type of music, it's a really well-made documentary that um, kind of just tells you about, you know, two guys who sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, bumble into something and then manage to go through a, a hella loader ups and downs to make a huge success out of it and i feel it's really inspirational and would inspire other young people to sort of you know harness these open platforms to start their own thing at the same time and if you are a fan of the music it's got an incredible lineup of everybody from Stormzy to So Solid Crew to uh, you know H, AJ, Tracy, Giggs, Kano, Gets, Miss Bank, Steflon, Don. I could you know we got like seventy five different artists to step forward and talk about not only really why this platform. Was uh, so you know the whole GRM Daily platform is so important to them in their careers, but also to go beyond that and really talk about how the UK urban scene has has really come into its own since there was this real spirit of unity. Um, around GRM Daily and the other YouTube channels that have done so well. So, yeah, you can see that on the GRM Daily channel. I definitely advise um, anybody, even if you're not a fan of the music, to check that one out.
1: Okay, well, we'll put a link to that in the episode description so everybody can uh, can go and have a, uh, a look at that. Are you still involved in scripted content?
2: You know, we really feel like the, the most important thing to uh, focus on is unscripted content that feels a closer relative to the stuff that's really working predominantly on youtube uh and you know when we were doing stuff all the behind the paywall we felt very strongly that you had to offer a premium scripted content to be able to um you know make people feel like their subscription payment for the content was worthwhile so um, when we stopped, when we moved in front of the paywall, we kind of changed the focus a bit. That's not to say that I don't have a few secret things in development that we're you know, thinking about. But really, we're not taking, um, actively taking scripted pitches
1: at the moment. You must be one of the most pitched to executives within the content industry. Um, what, what is it that you're actually looking for now? Be, can you be really specific about what it is you're looking to put on YouTube?
2: You know, we're looking for big ideas. We're looking for ways that we can create huge moments that can get artists, YouTube creators, celebrities together to celebrate, you know, something that's maybe happening on the calendar or an important anniversary or an event in people's lives through YouTube. A great example of this is that last year, Uh, my American colleagues created a show that was a reaction to the fact that none of the college graduations were happening and none of the high school graduations. So they made this show called Dear Class of 2020 that was a mix of kind of celebrity commencement speeches, uh, live musical performances, bits and pieces of sketches um, that really just tried to create an alternative to the many ceremonies that were being missed in the us and that was a huge success and is a great example of how youtube can step in with a commission to either accentuate or replace something that's happening in the world so we have a few things like that we're going to announce soon beyond that and and by the way i just want to be clear and we're open to more suggestions really of those type of things beyond that you know a few of the projects we've made this year and stuff that we have coming next year are personality based documentaries we really believe that youtube was founded on personality you know so much of the success is because so many people use the platform to just sort of convey their true stories we want to build on that we want to do really nice premium docs with uh for the most part with people who have built a following on youtube but feel like they're ready to work with us to communicate either an untold chapter of their story or to document the next big challenge they want to do you know we really want to have uh collaborations with people who are willing to open themselves up um, and really do documentaries that feel like they're um you know uh, telling a new chapter to their story we've done a great example of this is a show we launched uh i think it was was it last week or the week before very recently anyway called how to be bazinga Bazinga is a young man who's one-seventh of the YouTube uh, crew the Sidemen who are hugely popular and Bazinga real name Ethan. He used to be um, Very very unfit very overweight very out of shape and consequently was very depressed This you know made him very unhappy. He went through a real dark time which we document in the documentary And then came to a kind of sort of crux moment where he decided that he should turn his life around through embracing fitness. And we tell the story of how he did just that and aimed to go for the London Marathon. So to get fit to run in the marathon. And what happened, of course, is the London Marathon was post-cancelled, postponed. And so the documentary kind of you know, from one perspective, went off the rails in terms of, hey, it was just going to be about this guy's transformation in the marathon. But actually, the fact that it ended up, you know, 2020 being 2020 meant that we were able to go on a much richer journey that saw him, you know, really open up about himself in a whole deeper way. So that's How To Be Bazinga. That's on Bazinga's YouTube channel right now. Definitely worth a look. Another one we've done, which is about to launch on the 12th of November, Uh, Also under the How To Be brand is How To Be Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie is a hugely popular pop star, used to be with Rudimental. And we originally commissioned a doc that was going to be about her most sort of active, successful year as a pop star. It was going to see her do big shows and really get out there uh, and take her career to the next level. And actually what we've ended up with is a beautiful portrait of what happens to a pop star when everything stops and you know she was in lockdown and then when she came out of lockdown you know the the schedule that she'd had for so long wasn't um you know wasn't there anymore you know the sort of uh constant stream of appearances and stuff that she had to do uh were kind of you know not on the rails yet so we ended up with a really introspective portrait of of what happens when you know the world of a pop star slows down and she really starts to ask questions about herself so those are two really interesting documentaries that we've done that actually have been greatly affected in terms of their narrative by the 2020 roller coaster and they're really good examples of the type of things we want to continue to do
1: The three projects you mentioned so far are probably slightly more youth focused. Do you have a demographic in mind in terms of uh, age range that you're looking to, uh, to appeal to?
2: I mean, really uh, shows that appeal to a kind of 18 to 30 year old audience is our main focus right now. Every now and again, amazing uh, Paul McCartney special ekes through that goes broader than that. But for the most part, it's that sort of 18 to 30 audience, um, and we want to make sure that we bounce around different audience sectors on youtube it's so different to like you know bbc2 or channel 4 or something where they they have a brand and they're going squarely at one audience group with us at youtube originals you know for youtube and normal people who are users everybody's youtube experience is different mine is different from yours It's different to my mum's is different to your wife's is different to the milkman's and so people are part of lots of different kind of audience groups on youtube so we want to have commissions that have the ability to sort of reach a key group of of fans but then because of the quality of the production maybe spill out and reach some some others as well so that's one of the key things to think of when coming to us is like who on youtube is this going to be Targeted to because things are so niche and no show is ever a sort of broad one one show fits all kind of um, model.
1: You mentioned how to be as a strand that obviously you're you're building. So you open to suggestions of I don't know footballers were within the how to be strand. Are you looking to build upon that strand uh, and take the inspiration from the two shows you've already done and and build it further out?
2: Oh, for sure, absolutely football that would be amazing it's really just got to be um you know it really helps if they have a big existing youtube fan base i'll just be honest you know doing something without a huge youtube fan base is not really something that we're interested in right now we like to build on the great hard work that people have done to build their youtube channels
1: and finally on programming in terms of format those how to be shows are they short form? are they are they multiple episodes short form or are we talking about our our long docs
2: i mean justin it is the beauty of youtube here in a nutshell like i don't know (laughs) and B is 60 minutes long a one one off one piece we felt that was the best um version for that bazinga is three 20 minute episodes it really is like what is the best way to tell the story? in a most effective way and what do the audience react to best mm. you know those are the things uh, that we have to think about so the how to be thing could be whatever producers tell me it should be next
1: and when it comes to promotion of shows because what what's different about youtube as well obviously is the openness of the success of a project because you can see how many views it's had which is you know as opposed to Other platforms other digital content platforms that don't share those sort of performance stats in terms of your originals presumably the youtube machine helps to promote those through various means as well within the youtube and google infrastructure i mean if if you have a show commission if you commission a show from a producer it's a fantastic show You, you can bring things to bear from 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 google and youtube to help deliver the audience as well rather than it just uh, existing in an isolated on an isolated channel
2: i wish it was that simple yes there are lots of ways that we can promote the shows on platform no, we at YouTube Originals are not in control of any of those, so we really have to be able to produce things that sort of inspire the wider team at Google, the wider team at YouTube to get them excited about it, so we can capitalize on those resources. Um, and how we do that is by making cracking shows that you know show the best of YouTube. So there's a real argument of why we need to promote on platform. Um, hmm. So yeah, there are there are lots of ways. But I wish I controlled them all. And right now, uh, you know, I really just make programs.
1: The other thing about YouTube is obviously there are communities existing around content and interaction with creators is what sets it apart, really. So, you know, that that must be presumably another measure of success, not only the number of views that that a show achieves, but also the interactions, the comments, the likes, etc., the amount of interaction that, that the audience has with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like one of the best things about doing a show on YouTube is that you get just that real honest, um, you know, feedback, uh, direct feedback from people who, you know, for the most part have their shielded identities and will be completely honest with you. And, uh, you know, uh, for the most part, we find that that is, is one of the great joys of making shows for the platform. And same for the producers we work with.
1: So uh, over the past few months, we've seen the spectacular rise of TikTok in the the short form content space. And and we've e- seen the equally spectacular failure of Quibi. Uh, so two, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar platforms there are uh, suffering a uh, uh, very differing fate. So, I mean, what, what's, what's your view on Quibi, for example, in terms of, you know, something that kind of held so much promise or did it was it always doomed to fail
2: well it's tough man because like i know a lot of really great people that went to work there and really believed in it and and you know they they put their hearts and souls into a lot of producers put their hearts and souls into some you know really exciting shows for that platform um so it's it's sad to see it go it's sad at this time especially to see you know brilliant people back in the job market you know so I feel you know that I subscribed but then I just you know I I, there's just already so many different things on my phone that show me things that I'm interested in um I really I I, you know there's a number of different ways you can break it down but ultimately it came down for to me with was just not being able to watch any of the stuff on the living room I, I feel like that would have been a um you know, it would have made it a different experience for me personally and in in how I connected with with Quibi. I mean, there's there's so much to be said about this one. A guy I know called Sander Saar, um, he's a guy I used to work with at Disney. He's a brilliant YouTuber. He has an amazing video where he just breaks down the whole thing right from the sort of proposition of Silicon Valley meets Hollywood. What does that actually mean? Um, I advise anyone who's interested in the Quibi uh, debate to sort of take a look at that. But you know, Justin, ultimately, I, I think it's a sad thing for all the people that work there and work so hard. And I'm surprised they gave up so easily. But the the numbers must have been really shocking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you're the only subscriber that I've spoken to, actually. I mean, I went in for the free trial, I think the same day that I, I downloaded it, I had a quick look, looked around for, you know, anything that interest me. And then put a note in my diary for when to cancel the uh, the trial you know that it was the, that was my first sort of interaction with uh, with quibi and you know i did try with a couple of the shows but just the, the also the, the you know the idea of it not being shareable not being socially shareable was to me was extraordinary when they were presumably aiming at the same audience or a very similar audience to youtube that 18 to 34 35 audience
2: you know the 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 whole convention of sharing is so important to everything we do at YouTube, like honestly if if something moves you emotionally today if a c- if a piece of content a piece of entertainment really you know connects with you, you engage with it, and you know the main engagement is to share it with your friends and tell people about it so to not have that function was a was a miss I mean I did enjoy the show they did music and which was you know, great documentary. I saw one episode about a lighting director and his relationship with one of the big DJs. I can't remember who. And who can forget that show about flipping renovating houses where grizzly murder have happened previously? I mean, come on, guys. That that will surely go down in history.
1: Yeah. And the sex store show as well. I can't remember the name of that one, but Anna Kendrick. I did enjoy that. Maybe we'll see that somewhere else. Maybe we'll see it on YouTube in a in a different format. You never know.
2: I mean, who knows, man? Those shows, the deals that they had with the producers means that those shows will likely live again or find new distribution. So, yeah, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully there'll be some uh, formerly Quibby classics that find new homes elsewhere. And so what, what do you think
1: the future holds for short form? We've obviously seen TikTok enter the market, uh, as I mentioned earlier on. Seems to me that it's in rude health.
2: You know uh short form is 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 wildly popular it's it's a a bigger part of everybody's lives as long form i think quibi were going for a mid-form thing which you know um i i didn't see that there was any kind of um direct appetite for a kind of mid-form format personally out there i i think there's a sort of short form habit you know with with what's going on on TikTok and you know, what's going to happen with YouTube shorts soon and I've, and the IGTV. And I feel that there's a sort of longer uh, format living room thing where you get Netflix, Amazon Prime. That middle ground Quibi were doing, I'm not quite sure there was a big market need for that. But short form definitely, you know, is on the rise. Um, and I think, you know, uh, we're, we're still probably, you know, quite early on in the TikTok story.
1: So we've talked about your licensing business, Jonathan. Uh, what about the other divisions of Jukin and uh, and how else you make money?
0: Yeah. So the business uh, and the infrastructure is really broken down in two ways. We talked about the licensing business is how we license our content to others, and then the other side of our business is how we take these really great videos and assets, and we create stories and original stories, and we create original brands. And so we've taken these really great videos. And we created these really great content brands uh, that are socially distributed that live on the platforms of Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. Uh, these are consumer facing brands that are verticalized in different verticals. And so we have our pet uh, brand, which is called the Pet Collective. We have our um, comedy brand called Fail Army. We have our inspirational brand called People Are Awesome. Between our five own and operated brands uh, that we program and publish on our on our uh, first on our social platforms, we have about two hundred thirty million fans. We do nearly three billion uh, views a month. So we're getting an incredible scale uh, of viewership and follower and followers on these platforms. And I, and we're publishing our, our 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 individual videos. We're publishing montages. And we're also uh, publishing original content that we've sold into uh, the Facebook watches of the world that we sold into traditional television shows. Um, yeah. Fail Army is a, is a TV show that's aired in uh, 200 markets around the world. We produce 140 half hour uh, um, t- um, individual television uh, episodes. Uh, it's spun off into a, a primetime television show for here in the UK on Channel 5. We sold it into yeah. uh, Fox in the U S and so really so we're taking these really great assets and telling, you know, long, longer stories with them, um, all the way yeah. up to streaming. But now we're, we're heavily invested in streaming. We were first mover to Pluto. Um, we we're first mover to Samsung plus and we're creating, you know, eight, these Avon channels, uh, that are, you know, essentially we're running 24, seven cable cable, uh, networks.
1: One of the many things that I've learned from having the honor of working with Sam Balcroft for a number of years was the importance of monetizing, building multiple revenue streams around content is absolutely key. And that's really what's made digital work, right?
0: Well, I think if you're just in the content game of just having one outlet, you're in a lot of trouble, particularly if you don't own the IP. I think it's so important to to own the IP. And I think the, the, the lifeblood of any media company whether you're Warner Brothers, you're Disney, um, you're Sony, is the ownership of that IP. And in our case, our ownership are these individual videos and these brands.
1: And being able to build your own brands and then spinning them out onto multiple platforms. It's uh, Absolutely. It is a fascinating market. So now is the time in the show where we get to discuss our guest's story of the week, where they highlight the key news stories that's caught their eye In the tv industry over the last few days luke what's your story of the
2: week i think this the story of the week that i'd love to talk about justin is just what we're living through right now in terms of the fact that we are now in a second lockdown here in the united kingdom and i think you know it's really important for for us and for the listeners um you know for us to just check in on what that means for production here in the uk
1: and not only in the UK, obviously, we've got very many listeners in France and many other territories around the world that are also in a similar lockdown situation.
2: I think, Justin, as well, it's like probably not just about production as well. I think it's also like, what does it mean for creativity? I think is it's a broader thing than just production, too.
1: Uh, I mean, I started this podcast right at the beginning of lockdown one. It sounds like you know the movie lockdown one, lockdown two. But what's what's really interesting is that the tools that we have at our disposal right now, from home when we are locked down at home, we've still got that ability to be creative, and with a camera and a laptop, you can do some amazing things, right? And share them with the world. And I think you know what we have seen is bursts of different types of creativity that are almost forced upon us or it's an outlet that we find that, that we can use so i'm hoping that there's going to be some uh, some real positive creative developments through the very uh, action of us being locked
2: down i think that's absolutely right i think it's a great opportunity for people to have maybe a little bit more focus on some of the creative projects they're working on um the technology is there to be able to share those with the world Um, I'd say it was probably a bit of a stretch to say that everybody were about to go into a cocoon And some amazing creative butterflies are going to come out the other end But I do kind of feel that in a way, you know, I I felt like um, I certainly was able to really sort of um, up the focus of the stuff we were doing in the first lockdown Um, and I feel like, you know, I saw that from a lot of other people and and even beyond the industry, although it is really frustrating to spend so much time as I am right now in the back bedroom, I I do feel that I did see a lot of people really, um, you know, engage in some self-improvement, particularly with fitness and stuff, um, that maybe if they had access to weather spoons and Nando's, they, they, they would be able to do so in quite the same way.
1: On that note, actually, uh, we're going to be having a few little mental health sections going forward on Telecast over the next few weeks. So we're going to be just thinking just a little bit for a few minutes each show, just about looking after each other and ourselves and our minds and all the rest of it. I think it's, that's, that's important for us to spend a few minutes uh, every week maybe doing that as we're not allowed to go out to the gym and exercise and do all of those things that we probably prefer to do, go and play football or whatever it is. You know, I think it's important for us to look after ourselves. Jonathan, what's caught your eye?
0: So, I think there was some really big news uh, that just dropped a few weeks ago is Quibi. Um, And since you were talking a lot about short form video, um, obviously, this is a platform that was focused on short form video, focused on mobile.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's got to be the biggest disaster in the content, digital content industry for the last decade, surely.
0: Well, certainly, I'm an advocate for for short form video, advocate for for the digital industry, and so I never want to see a, a platform fail. But uh, the short lived life, it might go down history as as being, uh, you know, one of the, one of the big or shortest failures ever uh, in the space. Um, that being said, it was you know run by some of the biggest and smartest people in the industry, uh, media moguls. Uh, it was. Backed up by by uh, some really smart strategic capital, not just any type of capital, but some, mm. from some of the biggest uh, uh, folks in Hollywood. It had some of the biggest stars in Hollywood creating this content. Uh, everyone from from Steven Spielberg to uh, some of the biggest stars um, uh, starring in this content, and so yeah. You know, it hit. If if you were stacking the the deck, you were stacking the deck in the favor to you know to win the hand right here.
1: The more that I heard about it as it developed and got closer and closer to launch, the the less convinced I became. I mean, okay, it's easy to look in hindsight. Obviously, the pandemic did have a huge effect on it because of the the occasionality that it was designed for, i.e., everybody sitting on the tube or on the bus or. Getting to getting to the office and using those uh, those thirty minutes of time to to consume content, but the shareability or the lack of it being shareable, socially shareable content, surely that was the biggest impediment to its success.
0: Well, that's that, that's certainly a uh, critique that a lot of people are having. How does it not have uh, the basic shareable uh, features that just about any other? a uh, 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 short form video platform has. Uh, certainly a lot of folks have been commenting on that. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't know what the right answer is. I just know I would have done it slightly differently. Um, and I think when you've had that type of star power in the room and that star, quite star power backing you up, um, you start maybe thinking that you could do no wrong and that people are going are just going to come there and be on the platform with all that star power. And I don't think that was the case. Um, I I think people were were curious to check it out, but I don't know if it was a need in the market. You talk about the pandemic uh, could be affecting the platform, but if you, we just talked about TikTok, how the pandemic actually, I think accelerated TikTok and accelerated their growth and viewership. I think launching it during a pandemic, it sure might've had some negative effects on the platform and, and stunted the growth. But I do think if they would have tested the market uh, um, and and iterated on the platform, uh, tested what features people want, surveyed surveyed their audience, I think you would be hearing there would be a much different story than being one of the biggest you know fastest failures in Hollywood. I, I I think it would have been much different. I don't think they they had to necessarily create have all that star power right out of the gate. You
1: having built Duke in from scratch within you know digital bite-sized shareable content you've must have tested and learnt on the job right this is this is a new frontier and you've you've tested seen what worked what doesn't work and you you know you're able to learn as you go along and write the playbook as you develop I mean it this it seems like there was a you know multi-billion dollar bet with no research or no insight into what 18 to 24 or 18 to 34 year olds really want.
0: Yeah, I think for us is you know one of our I think our advantages uh, our competitive advantages out there that we've raised very little capital. We haven't any money that we do spend to invest in the company is just coming from cash flow. It's not coming from outside investors. So we have to be so careful and cautious. Uh, and strategic in what we invest in, because if we launch something that fails and we put all of our cards or all of our chips on the table, it's going to be the end of the company. And so because I think we do have a limited amount of capital, we have a limited amount of resources, we've used that to our competitive advantage. I don't think our company would be successful if we raise $100 million out of the gate. I really don't, because I think money doesn't solve all your problems. Um, it's really about testing. It's really about iterating. It's really, I think being a startup is having that minimum viable product mindset. Um, those are the companies that succeed. And for uh, I think Quibi going out and trying to hit a home run right out of the gate um, is probably th- was the death right as soon as they stepped up to the plate. They tried competing with Netflix. Netflix has been business for 20 years. You know, uh, YouTube has been a business for 15 years owned by you know, the biggest tech company, most innovative tech company, you know, Google in the world. Um, so to say you can compete with those folks right out of the gate uh, and not launch something small, not launching something that you could test and iterate from, uh, I think that was their, their, their biggest mistake.
1: Lack of resources keeps you creative, keeps you on your toes.
0: Forces you to be creative. Yeah, absolutely. Forces you not to spend money that you, you can't you can't afford. What we do is we test new programming in front of our audience every single day. and We iterate from that.
1: And now it's time for my guests to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they want to tell to get in the bin. So, Jonathan, who's your hero of the week?
0: I'll keep it relevant. And I think Sean Connery is my hero of the week. One of the greatest actors of all time, the original uh, James Bond. I don't think you get much of a bigger hero than that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he's, uh, he was 90. I mean, he that's... That's the example of a a life well lived, I think.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he went out on top and retired when he had enough. And I have a lot of respect for that.
1: And Luke, who's your hero of the week?
2: My hero of the week, or even hero of the year, is Munya Chihuahua. Now, this is a guy who, if you're not familiar with him, M-U-N-Y-A-C-H-A-W-A-W-A. Put that in the search engine, and the words after him that will pop up will be things like Pretty Patel, Lockdown 2, uh, Chipmunk Stormzy Feud. This guy is so incredibly creative. He He makes parody spoof videos, songs... Uh, connected to the events of the day but what's so incredible about this is he's almost as fast as bbc news at this stage he moves so incredibly quickly um you know to basically riff off things that are going on in real life there was a scandal about a sort of um very very distasteful uh workout regime that was being used in uh, a, a british gym chain Twelve hours later, he had an amazing song and a video taking the P out of that. Um, you know, uh, there was a, a moment when uh, Skepta, for some inexplicable reason, thought it would be a good idea to post a picture on his socials of Pretty Patel. We still don't know why, but immediately he made a cover of one of Skepta's biggest hits. Uh, which was basically a diss track of Pretty Patel and her attitudes to immigration and the like. Uh, you know, the, the guy is, is, is so funny, is so sharp, is such a big talent, and is really using technology, social media, and equipment to really communicate with his audience. It's growing really quickly. He's growing bigger and bigger on YouTube, on Instagram. Everybody check him out. Munya Chihuahua. It, as soon as something big happens in the news, immediately go you know give it 12 hours go to his page and there'll be a fun song there so he, he's somebody definitely to watch out for in the future all right okay well
1: that's a that's another link that that we'll put in there uh luke and in the description section and who or what is going in your bin luke
2: i mean look I'm, i don't want to sound like larry david and victor meldrew's uh <laughs> bastard stepchild but i have to put iTunes in the bin. iTunes. I was there with the first iPad. I have been buying music from the iTunes store from the beginning. I've converted all my CDs into iTunes. I already hate the sound of my own voice as I say this, but... <laughs> This is an app that I've been using since 2001. And there seemed to be a point when Apple Music was introduced where all of a sudden the updates of this app only made it worse and worse every time and made it less intuitive for the users who are still, gosh, shock horror, uh, using an MP3 library. Um, You know, nothing works about it. You know, the cover art is weirdly mixed up. Every time there's an update, All of a sudden, the play count information doesn't correspond between iPad and iPhone. I'm going to shut up now at the risk of, you know, basically losing subscribers to your podcast. But honestly, I'm telling you, if anyone's out there who uses iTunes they'll know what i'm saying it's just been the biggest frustration and i just can't go on to twitter to at apple and moan about it so i thought uh telecast would be where i where vent this one
1: okay all right and and presumably you'll be encouraging people to stream music through youtube right
2: look i mean I, <laughs> if if itunes wasn't such a mess maybe not but yeah youtube music is pretty good i'll be honest with you just because they have the 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 breadth of stuff but you know i I don't want to be constantly the company guy but it is it is a good app definitely
1: and jonathan who or what are you telling to get in the bin
0: so i guess being in the us being election day and election week um i think you know any efforts or attempts to suppress the vote and suppress our democracy here in the us that's who i want want to put into the bin uh it just really angers me uh seeing some of the nonsense going on here in the states and and you're in l.a and are you
1: seeing shops and offices getting boarded up waiting for the for the result of this
0: yeah absolutely um and i it it, it brings fears because i saw them boarding up a few months ago during the protests um and the you know the chaos that went that that that, that came here uh, a few months ago and so i hope you know we're not going to repeat ourselves Uh, i hope it's going to be you know peaceful for uh, uh today and for the rest of the week
1: luke jonathan thank you so much for joining us on the show this week really enjoyed chatting to both of you jonathan stay safe over there in los angeles i hope everything goes off without a hitch over the next few days we'll hopefully see you in person before too long
2: thank you so much for having me you too stay safe hey thank you justin keep podding on
1: Once again, it's time to head over to Riga to speak to K7 Media's Gertz Lises. How are you doing this week, Gertz? Hi, Justin. I'm very well. Hope you're all there as well. We're still here. We're heading into winter and we're all enjoying it and uh, getting on with it and making things Mm. work. With This week, we're going to be talking about physical events and virtual events. As we come to the end of the year, we've all been doing Zooms for months and months now. And we've all attended, or a lot of us, I think, have probably attended quite a few of these virtual events that have been in place of their physical counterparts. But let's let's reflect on on that and talk about what we've learned, what's worked,
3: and maybe what hasn't. Let's start maybe with a little bit of summarising the recent MIPCOM, uh, which, according uh, to Reed gathered around six thousand registered delegates, probably making MIPCOM uh, the largest virtual market so far. Um, We have been talking to many distributors and buyers lately and the reviews have been pretty mixed. Some noted that arranging of meetings was slow and level of confirmed meetings prior to market was much lower than the physical MIPCOM event. But on the upside, others confirmed they had been able to arrange meetings with clients, which they hadn't been able to reach in other ways. It was also reported that due to studios increasingly holding back their IP for their own OTT platforms, as well as their major productions being halted, there were more opportunities arising for international distributors to fill this gap in programming required by third parties, with the role of super-indies such as Fremantle, Benajai Rights, ITV Studios, BBC Studios, Betafilm, as well as global streamers particularly increasing. HBO Max, Disney Star, IMDb were all mentioned among the most active buyers of Finnish tape, while U.S. broadcasters had been specifically looking around for international drama. And one common trend was that many participants observed surging interest in co-viewing programming, that is, shows that appeal to the whole family, which bring different generations together and while the volume of news and deals reported was much lower than normal, I think Mipcom was still used by many for marketing purposes. It was interesting. I was chatting with Paul Robinson when we did a
1: Mipcom preview. Yeah, he's a real veteran of uh, of Mipcom and uh, one of the most efficient meeting people that, that book meetings. And you know his diary is always crammed uh, all the time that he's there. And he was saying that. Yeah, it was it was unusual going into MIPCOM that, that he still had gaps in his diary. But yeah, he's, he was also reporting that uh, some of the people that he was able to meet with were perhaps, you know, not the normal type of executive, some of them more senior that he was able to access. So I think that there's perhaps fewer meetings, you know, nobody booked their half hour however meetings over 100 meetings some people Mm. do you know obviously it was a lot less than that but obviously the platform being open for much longer than the the three days of mipcom obviously also helped with scheduling and it was a maybe a bit more of a relaxed affair so when looking at the bigger picture of all of these virtual events Is there still a place for them now? What is the point of having activity crammed into three or four days when we can all now
3: communicate with each other on an ongoing basis? I think that two main reasons are... Either when an online market is offering a chance to reach out to new leads and clients in a market where you have few or no contacts at all, or they are not responsive via other channels, or when the conference and events program, whether it's presentations, master class or screenings, fits your needs, your area of interest. but. What is also uh, important to note is that many reps I have been talking to stress that online markets require more preparation than physical events in order to make the participation effective. Particularly if uh, we are looking at distribution side, either it's investing in technologies, for instance, securing storage of all your master materials in the cloud and moving them around virtually instead of using Vimeo or other third-party tools, or production of more sophisticated sales materials like creating a bigger deck, explaining more, putting more of your sales arguments in your assets, reels and brochure as you have less opportunity to explain them in person. Some other effective uh, strategies include supplying clients with sufficient information about the new shows prior to a meeting, focusing on new programming and leaving discussions about library titles for post-market communication Some distributors are also organizing their own virtual upruns or launching their own companies' festivals for their clients. Others are organizing their own virtual networking events during the online markets. As in markets, it's very much about uh, markets branding, and running your own event can provide much more branding opportunities, for instance.
1: Well, I guess there's there's pros and cons, aren't there, when it comes to
3: virtual as well as physical events? Certainly, certainly. At first glance, virtual events are obviously cost-effective. You are saving time, uh, travel costs, saving on entertaining clients. Communication online can be less time-restrictive. The interaction between sellers and buyers can be more regular, meetings can be longer longer with less rush, and given the current environment, interaction during meetings can be even more personal as you get to see the counterpart in a different, more personal atmosphere, often in their home environment, which can lead also to closer personal connection. As online events are more cost effective, particularly in smaller territories, they provide an opportunity to register more team members and allow to split responsibilities more effectively. For instance, while some uh, of the team watch the sessions, others attend the meetings. And at least theoretically, the conference programs can also attract more senior participants, as you already mentioned, as they could not necessarily physically travel to participate due to lack of time. Like, for instance, we saw Ted Sarandos, for instance, giving a, a keynote uh, at the recent MIPCOM, which he probably wouldn't couldn't afford to travel to Cannes. On the downside, it's obvious that technical issues can still be more common, uh, say, due to bad internet connectivity, for example. Parties can also get distracted by the kids or their pets at home, leading to less attentive listening, missing bits of important information and increased stress. They are less effective in making new contacts, obviously. There are no chance meetings, lack of networking limits, establishing of uh, new personal introductions, initiating new partnerships. and. Everybody is kind of working on their own. The team building and the internal strategizing aspect within sales or acquisitions teams can be missing. There is less exchange of information, fewer opportunities to kind of peek over each other's fences, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And also time zones can become an obstacle as well. While at the physical event, all participants work in the same time zone, obviously, using virtual meetings can become not too convenient, to say the least, for counterparts uh, scattered across the whole world. Say, if an event is taking place in Europe, South Asian participants or Australian participants may need to schedule meetings very, very late at night and so on. And of Mm -hmm. course, providers of virtual events are still uh, learning how to help the clients to create buzz around their new titles. Or just how to make their websites more uh, user friendly. Participants are still often reporting issues with smooth navigation around the sites, access to conferences, finding useful information, or just lack of uh, providing information in different languages, to name a few.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's right. I mean, if you think about the physical events, then you know there's a lot of thought and preparation goes into mm. you know f- footfall and flow and how people move through physical environments you know when you're looking at user experience on a website that's a different thing altogether and you know if you don't get that right then it can be a really frustrating time-consuming experience so uh you know which is a completely different skill set that we've not had within uh, markets before so so how do you see the future for physical as well as
3: virtual markets I think the future will belong to a mix of uh, fewer physical hybrid events and a growing number of smaller virtual events. Uh, While virtually first events will continue to provide a new way of communication and deal-making, the major long-established traditional markets are going to turn into hybrid events, offering different tiers for its participants. I think markets such as MIPCOM will cater for both, those who decide to attend the market in Cannes physically, and those who would prefer to participate in it virtually. In case of a choice, attendees will increasingly choose to participate in those physical events which are going to take place closer to their homes. And despite the seemingly higher effectiveness in uh, resource management provided by virtual events, we see that there are two main reasons they are not providing the same level of business as the traditional events. First, major traditional events have long established themselves as launchpads for the biggest new shows and formats, and from production schedules to marketing campaigns, year-on-year calendars have been attached to certain dates to get the new programs ready for premiere. Without traditional physical events, this cycle is currently losing the focus, and many industry professionals admit that not having such tentpole dates in their annual schedules is making drawing attention to launches more complicated and less of a big event feel. With the importance of deal making at physical uh, markets diminishing, I think that showcasing programming is going to be their main mission. And secondly, virtual events provide limited possibilities for networking and finding new contacts through personal communication as the main drive for business growth. With growing competition among events, many of them will try to attract participants by offering different promotional bonuses. However, there are certain risks, I think, that it will become a norm for potential participants to increasingly choose those events, which offer free participation or at least considerable discounts. It will also become increasingly difficult to prove such expenses uh, internally as marketing budgets have decreased during the crisis and particularly those distributors which report staying flat or even increasing their sales in such environment will face the question how to justify increase in spending again. And also Mm -hmm. companies which have their sales reps placed uh, regionally or even locally in major territories report that this has really paid off during the pandemics as they have been able to offer ongoing more personal service. So I think there will be more companies considering a similar strategy or alternatively increasingly diverting their budgets towards individual sales trips to territories as they provide connections in deeper and more personal levels than meetings at markets.
1: So we're seeing a massive disruption when it comes to the events calendar. We know that. But looking at business models of each of these events, between now and the end of the year, we've got Content London, usually I had Science Congress, and obviously coming up in the new year, NAPI, Real Screen, and then MIP TV again, as well as lots of other uh, much more sort of niche and focused events. So it's it's obviously going to be a time of real disruption for these events, and maybe some of them we might not see coming through again. It's good that this time it was you who said that, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, or maybe we'll see some of these events merging. That's the other uh, option, isn't it? Maybe there's there's opportunities for for some of these events to partner up and grow as they go forward in,
3: a, in, a, in an effort to, to survive. I think that the 2021 still will be in some kind of transfer stage. We will probably settle in the new normality, as we like this expression right now, I think. Uh, probably not before 2022. Maybe we'll see a massive explosion in events
1: again in 2022. It depends if those who are uh, holding the marketing budgets will, uh, will feel that there's value in sending their execs around the world. That's, uh, I hope so. I hope so. We all want to get back together again, don't we, and, and see each other. And uh, uh, I think, you know, what was interesting is that usually my business, we have a lot of uh, producers attending MIPCOM. And this year we had none it seemed to me to be much more of a straight distribution and sales market that was kind of it without all of the added benefits and layers of activity going on on top of that that attracts the, uh, the producers
3: yeah interesting
1: gertz thank you so much until we speak again virtually next week stay safe and we'll speak to you in a week's time thank you take care well that's about it for another week's show As always, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. We've set up a new networking group for listeners to Telecast called Telecast Community. It's a place to discuss the TV industry issues raised in the show and we'd also love to hear your suggestions for future show topics and guests. Just search Telecast Community in the group section on LinkedIn and we'll see you there. This week's Telecast was sponsored by prbuzz.tv. If you want to hear more about our advertising and sponsorship packages, please email justin at boomdialogue.com. That's justin at boomdialogue.com. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers. So until next Thursday, see you in the LinkedIn group. And as always, stay safe.